Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This is an apostrophe podcast production. We regret to inform you, the Rejection Podcast. I knew if I quit, nobody would ever believe women had the capability to run 26 plus miles. If I quit, everybody would say it was a publicity stunt. If I quit, it would set women's sports back, way back. Catherine Switzer. In July of 1928, nine athletes from around the world gathered in Amsterdam's Olympic Stadium for what would become a historic event. It was the first time women were allowed to compete in Olympic track and field. Only 28 years earlier, women weren't permitted into the Olympics at all. Let's journey back. The modern Olympics began in 1896 in Athens, Greece. It was a men's-only international competition spanning 43 different events. In the year 1900, the International Olympic Committee, comprised solely of men, first allowed women to participate, but only in select events like golf, sailing, tennis, and croquet. In 1912, women were permitted to compete in aquatic events. By 1921, the IOC expanded women's participation in a few more categories. But 
they specifically left track and field off the women's program. Men were allowed to participate in the 100, 200, 400, 800, 1500, 5000, and 10,000 meter races, along with the Olympic marathon. But it's widely documented that, at the time, it was understood that if women participated in such high endurance events, they would become, quote, defeminized. That they'd risk turning overly muscular, masculine, and unattractive. That they'd grow hair in undesirable places, cause permanent physical damage, and, worst of all, it might cause them to become infertile. The overarching narrative was that women were inherently frail, and excluding them from competition was for their own good. But in 1928, seven Olympic Games since women were first permitted onto the Olympic stage, pressure from growing protests forced the IOC to reconsider its restrictions. And for the first time, women were permitted to compete in races up to 800 meters. And it was that year, in the Dutch capital, that nine women got into position, ready to compete in the first-ever 800-meter final. The starter pistol sounded, and the athletes sprinted along the track, surrounded by packed stands full of screaming spectators. It was a tight race until Germany's Lena Radke took the lead, eventually opening up an impressive eight-meter gap in the last lap, ultimately crossing the finish line victorious with a time of two minutes, 16 seconds. An eighth of a second later, Japan and Sweden's runners sprinted into the silver and bronze medal positions. It was a history-making moment for the Olympics, for athletics, for women. But if you read the newspaper headlines the next day, you wouldn't know it. The Daily Mail concluded that the race would age the athletes prematurely. Another publication wrote that the event was a disgrace to womanhood and a danger to all females. And the New York Evening Post wrote, quote, Below us on the cinder path were 11 wretched women five of whom dropped out before the finish, while five collapsed after reaching the tape. Yet, as elite runner and scholar Roger Robinson later put it, those accounts of the race were pure fiction. Firstly, there were nine runners, not 11. Second, every single runner finished the race. Zero dropped out, not five as reported. And lastly, the film footage of the day shows only one runner appearing to collapse afterward. But it gets worse. Next to those articles weren't photos of the medalists crossing the finish line triumphant, but strategically selected pictures of the athletes looking tired after their sprint. Some resting their hands on their hips, catching their breath, others panting, painting a picture of what one writer called a spectacle of exhaustion. 1997 IOC Vice President Anita de France later said athletes are understandably spent after racing at world record paces. If you watch the aftermath of the men's track and field events from that same year, the footage is almost identical with many staggering off the track and collapsing to the ground. She says the press outright distorted the women's results, hijacking the narrative and setting women's sports back yet again. After that fateful day in Amsterdam in 1928, 
women were banned from competing in any race longer than 200 meters at the Olympic Games for 32 years. The Olympic marathon distance of 24.8 miles was based on a famous Greek legend. A Greek foot soldier was sent to run from the plains of Marathon all the way to Athens with the news of the astounding victory over a superior Persian army. Exhausted as he approached the leaders of the city of Athens, he staggered and gasped, Rejoice, we conquer, and then collapsed. Hmm. The year after the very first modern Olympic Games in 1896, the Boston Marathon was founded in 1897. It became the world's oldest annual marathon and is considered by many to be the most prestigious. Shortly after its inception, the distance of a marathon was lengthened slightly and standardized to 26.2 miles. Like the Olympics, the Boston Marathon was a men's-only endeavor. It was, again, suggested women weren't physiologically capable of running such a distance, that the weaker sex would become weaker still and risk complications like anemia, varicose veins, mustaches, sagging breasts, and irreparable damage to their reproductive organs. Plus, they were ridiculed if they tried. So women were sidelined, forced to watch the event from the sidewalk behind barriers, both literal and figurative, reduced to handing out water or cheering on their fathers, brothers, sons, and husbands. One such spectator was a woman by the name of Roberta, or Bobby, Gibb. As author and marathoner Ambie Burfoot tells the story in his book titled First Ladies of Running, Bobby Gibb was a Massachusetts native born in a hospital elevator in 1942. And she stayed in motion ever since. Gibb loved to ride horses and run around for hours with their family dog. Over time, the neighbors noticed how much exercise she was giving her furry friend. So they hired her to take their pets on runs, too. Eventually, young Gibb could be seen sprinting through the woods, rain, snow, or shine, with six-plus dogs in tow. Her mother said she tried to package her daughter into the 1950s-style box of femininity, but Gibb chafed at the idea. She didn't like dresses because they only hindered her adventures. She says she ran to feel joy. She never timed her sprints or measured her distance. It wasn't important. Running was a form of self-expression and a time to think. One day at a family Thanksgiving, she was playing tag for hours, keeping up with her much older cousins, when her uncle pulled her aside. He told her she looked like she was floating through the air. He said, you have a gift for running. After graduating high school, Bobby Gibb traveled to San Diego for college. But unsurprisingly, there was no women's cross-country team at her school, so she was forced to make friends with the men's team. They were a group of like-minded athletes who timed and measured their runs, and suddenly Gibb became more and more aware of distance. She ran three miles, then five miles, then eight, constantly pushing herself to take it one step further. 
And that's when she heard someone mention something called the Boston Marathon. She'd never heard of it, surprisingly, considering she's from Massachusetts. She couldn't believe people could run 26.2 miles straight. It sounded impossible. So in 1964, at age 21, Gibb decided to see it for herself. She made her way back to her home state for the annual Patriots Day event. She talked her dad into coming with her. And the pair nabbed themselves a prime spot, front and center, ready to watch those superhuman runners sprint by. And as the first of the pack made their way around the corner, Gibb said her life changed in an instant. They seemed so natural, so graceful. They too floated. She said she was so gobsmacked she didn't even notice they were all men. To her, they were just fellow runners, fellow thinkers. And a switch flipped. She was going to run the Boston Marathon. Over the following year, while at college, Gibbs started training. There were few outlets for women to practice, so she had to get creative. She ran along San Diego beaches for hours, one day getting so lost in thought she accidentally crossed the Mexican border. Next, she ran a three-day, 100-mile horse race. Yes, a race for horses. She had no support, no food, and no fluids, but she had heart. Gibb covered 40 miles the first day and another 25 the second, sleeping overnight in a barn. She says she wasn't quite as fast as the horses, but made up time while the animals rested. Unfortunately, crippling knee pain forced her to throw in the towel on day three, but she covered nearly 70 miles total. She says though the horse race may have been ill-advised, she learned a lot about herself that day. First and foremost, that a 26-mile marathon was well within her reach. By the spring of 1966, Gibb was ready. This would be the year she'd apply to run the prestigious Boston Marathon. She wasted no time ordering her official marathon entry form. She filled in the information and submitted it to the Boston Athletics Association. Then a letter came in the mail. It was from the association. It stated that women were incapable of running 26.2 miles, that it was against the rules to allow women to run more than 1.5. And thus, as a woman, she was barred from entering the marathon. A stinging rejection. Each time Gibb read the letter, she got more and more angry. She says she didn't understand how women could be barred from entering marathons. It was just running. All human beings were capable of running. Tom Derdarian, author of The Boston Marathon, says there was one distinct benefit to Gibb's lack of experience. She had none of the preconceptions. It had never occurred to her that there were limits. She just wanted to run because she was really, really good at it. But yet, there she was, rejected on the basis of sex. Gibb was a self-described shy person, completely uninterested in becoming a headline. But in that moment, the Boston Marathon became more than just a feat of endurance. It became a feat of activism. She'd have to show the world what women could do. 
As the 1966 marathon approached, Gibb hopped on a three-day bus ride from San Diego to Boston. She cut her hair short. She slipped on boys' running shoes. She borrowed her brother's sweat shorts and oversized sweatshirt. And she pulled the hood over her head. There were 540 male runners that day. All she needed to do was blend in. The morning of April 19, 1966, Gibb had to coax her mother into driving her to the race. Her father thought she was delusional. She found a forsythia bush about 100 yards away from the starting line, and she hid behind it. But as she waited for the starter pistol, she felt her nerves creep in. Maybe she was delusional. She was crouched in a bush, dressed in men's clothes, about to illegally penetrate one of the longest-standing athletic institutions in history. She didn't know how the men around her would react. Her fellow runners, race officials, spectators, and police. What if they started shoving or bullying her? And worse, what if she was thrown in jail? Just then, the pistol went off. It was now or never. As the 540 runners passed Gibbs for Scythia Bush and all eyes followed them up the street, she emerged from her hiding place and started walking nonchalantly along the roadside. Then, as soon as it felt safe, she took off. And in that moment, it became official. For the first time in the Boston Marathon's 69-year history, a woman was running in the pack. As author Ambie Burfoot tells it, Gibb found it to be a huge relief to start moving her body and give an outlet to her nerves. But the anxiety she had over her safety only grew as she made her way down the course. What if race officials noticed she didn't have a bib number like everyone else? What if the men, now on all sides of her, discovered she'd crashed their all-male party? Well, by mile two, she'd get her answer. Gibbs says the rhythmic sound of souls against the pavement was suddenly broken by a man's voice that shouted, Hey, is that a girl? She smiled and nodded politely. As she prepared for the worst, more and more voices echoed down the street. Is that a girl? Whoa, that's a girl. At a girl. Wait, could it be they were positive voices? She realized the men around her weren't bullying her. They were bolstering her. As the race wore on, Gibb overheated in her sweatshirt. But underneath, she only had on a one-piece bathing suit, the best women's athletic wear she could find. She knew if she wanted to finish the race, she'd have to take it off. But if she took it off, her body would reveal her true identity. If she took it off, there'd be nowhere to hide. Gibb wanted to throw her hoodie to the side of the road, but she worried spectators and police officers might pull her off the course. But the kind runners in her vicinity told her not to worry. At the end of the day, it was a public road, and if anyone gave her any trouble, they'd protect her. So Gibb tossed her hoodie and kept running. But it didn't take long for news to travel across Boston that there was a woman on the course. Journalists started flocking toward Gibb, snapping pictures and sending reports to the local radio stations. 
Soon, spectators caught wind of the woman running in a bathing suit and started cheering her on. The news reached Wellesley College, the all-women's school where Hillary Clinton was earning her degree at the time. And a, quote, tidal wave of students rushed to the course to support Gibb. Then, policemen started encouraging her, telling Gibb to outrun all the men. She says she couldn't believe the support. It completely enveloped her. The latter third of the race was grueling. The brand new men's shoes she wore to blend in started giving her blisters. They weren't padded like her usual running shoes. Her heels pounded the concrete with each stride. Every mile felt longer and longer. But she knew she had to power through. If she failed, she said she'd single-handedly set women back another 50 years. As she entered the final mile, Gibb figured she'd cross the finish line, quietly grab a soda to quench her thirst, hopefully change her shoes, and head back to her parents' house. But as she turned that last corner, she couldn't believe her eyes. The sidewalks along the final stretch were jammed with cheering crowds, photographers, journalists, and their pens. As she crossed the tape, she was swarmed by reporters as someone threw a blanket over her shoulders. The governor of Massachusetts shook her hand as she was whisked into a press room where she was hammered with questions. Who was she? Why was it important to her to run the Boston Marathon? Was it a political statement? But her answer was simple. She loved to run. And she wanted to change the perception that women couldn't do it, to show people that women's femininity nor their health were diminished when they participated in sport. The next day, Gibbs' photo was splashed across major newspapers, next to some interesting copy. One article started with, A blonde 23-year-old beauty. Another called her a tidy-looking and pretty 23-year-old blonde. She said another essentially said, if a shapely blonde housewife can do this, anyone can. Then each went on to diminish her achievement. But not before the Boston Athletics Association president, Will Cloney, issued a press release. It said, Roberta Gibb did not run in yesterday's marathon. There is no such thing as a marathon for a woman. She may have run in a road race, but she did not race in the marathon. Gibb beat two-thirds of the men in the race that day, technically placing 126th out of 540. She clocked in a time of three hours, 21 minutes, which, by the way, would still qualify Gibb for the Boston Marathon by today's standards. She said at the end of the day, women were trapped in a little box, and she decided she couldn't live that way any longer. She wanted to do whatever she could to inspire other women to think outside that box. And the very next year, she'd do just that. Hold that thought. We'll be right back. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. 
Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Catherine Switzer was born five years after Bobby Gibb in 1947. Switzer grew up in Virginia. And like Gibb, she was naturally athletic, gravitating towards sports at a young age, playing games with her older brothers and the neighborhood kids. But she never felt particularly attractive. In her book titled Marathon Woman, Switzer describes her tween self as skinny with frizzy hair and glasses. She said she spent her nights hoping for some miraculous transformation that never seemed to come. So she figured her best shot at popularity was to become a cheerleader. But her father was quick to nip that dream in the pom-pom. He said, Honey, you shouldn't be cheering for others. You should play a sport where people are cheering for you. That advice was all fine and dandy except the only sport girls were allowed to play at her school was field hockey. And Switzer says her stick-handling skills left something to be desired. But her father, ever her cheerleader, piped up again with another slice of wisdom. He told his daughter not to worry too much about technique. If she could work on getting into shape, she could conquer any sport she wanted. And he said the best way to get fit was to run one mile per day. That seemed like a lot. A whole mile every single day. But when they did the math, Switzer would have to run just seven laps around their property to achieve that goal. So she started running. It was exhausting and kind of embarrassing, but she did it anyway. One day, then two days, then three, then every day until the varsity field hockey tryouts. She blew all the other hopefuls out of the water, running circles around them up and down the field. 
And that day, she says she became the proudest girl to ever wear a hockey tunic. Switzer kept up her daily running throughout high school, despite the neighborhood's best efforts. When the milkman or the mailman saw her, a girl, running, they were deeply concerned, even going so far as to ask her mother if she was okay. Her friend's parents also expressed concern about her newfound activity, saying if she kept going, she'd probably grow big legs and a beard. Then, her doctor gave her a piece of medical advice that would stick with her the rest of her life. He told her to stop running immediately. If she didn't, her uterus might fall out. But Switzer didn't listen. She says in her house, her passions were encouraged. Running meant starting every day with a sense of accomplishment, which did wonders for her self-esteem. When she wasn't on the field, Switzer was at the school paper. She joined because she felt there was ample coverage of the boys' teams, but the girls' sports, or rather, sport, was being left out. So she vowed to take on the job herself. But there was one part of working at the paper that she didn't love. Her byline. She thought Kathy Switzer didn't sound like a serious reporter. So she decided to follow in the footsteps of some of her favorite authors, like J.D. Salinger, E.E. E. Cummings, and T.S. Eliot. And she branded herself as S.V. Switzer, sports writer. After high school, Switzer went to a Virginia college before eventually transferring to Syracuse in New York. She continued her sports writing, this time for her college's student-run newspaper. And one assignment led her to interview a male athlete who had just run something called the Boston Marathon. Switzer had never heard of the Boston Marathon. Actually, she'd never heard of any marathon before. But it sounded fascinating. She wasted no time asking if a woman had ever participated. He said that one had before, Roberta Gibb, and she'd actually run a respectable 3 hours, 21 minutes. Fascinating. Syracuse only had a men's track team. There was no women's conference, and women weren't allowed to compete on the men's teams. But the men's coach said he'd allow her to practice with the team if she wanted. And she wanted. Practicing with the men's varsity track team was a reality check for Switzer. Her ability to run a mile didn't impress them much. They ran two miles just to get to practice. She'd have to up her game, so she enlisted the help of the team's unofficial manager, a volunteer coach named Arnie Briggs. Briggs was a veteran marathon runner, much older than Switzer. He was in the process of recovering from an injury, so while the other members of the team sprinted ahead, he appreciated her pace. They became not-so-fast friends. And as the pair jogged together, Briggs regaled Switzer with stories of running many marathons in his day, including the Boston Marathon 15 times. There it was again, the Boston Marathon. For months, he talked and she panted, 
One mile turned to three. Three miles turned to five. Five turned to ten. And eventually, exasperated, equally from that day's run and from hearing the same Boston Marathon stories a hundred times over, Switzer said, let's stop talking about Boston and let's go run it already. But Briggs stopped her right there. He said, no dame has ever run the Boston Marathon. Switzer knew Briggs was wrong. She'd found Bobby Gibbs' story in Sports Illustrated. But he insisted the story must have been fabricated because, quote, women are incapable of running that kind of distance. Switzer immediately stopped running. How dare he? She said she wouldn't take another step until he admitted women were just as capable as men. Briggs digressed. He told her if any woman was capable of running the Boston Marathon, it was her. And if she proved to him she could run 26.2 miles in practice, he'd take her to Boston himself. Switzer took Briggs' words at face value, and they made a plan. Each week, they'd add two miles to their runs until they reached 26.2. Passersby harassed them. They'd tell Briggs, you're going to ruin that girl. They'd tell Switzer she was going to turn into a man soon, or horror of horrors, a lesbian. Some people even tried driving them off the road. It was starting to get dangerous. But Switzer didn't lose focus. She had passion, a coach, and a goal. To run the biggest race in the world. Boston. Once Switzer was able to run 18 miles comfortably... Briggs suggested they jump straight to the full 26.2. The Boston Marathon was only one month away. It was now or never. So they set off on their first marathon-length run. Switzer was feeling good. They crossed the 18-mile mark, and before she knew it, they'd circled all the way back to the parking lot where they'd started. She did it, and she felt fine. But that couldn't be right. They must have measured wrong. But Briggs was absolutely certain. That was it. 26.2. She said it felt almost anticlimactic. So she insisted they run an extra five miles, just to be sure. And after 31.2 miles, Switzer was ready to believe it. She felt amazing. She started dancing and cheering. She gave Briggs a hug. And almost instantly, he collapsed in her arms. As she held him, he opened his eyes and said, You can run the Boston Marathon. As Patriots Day loomed closer and closer, it came time to submit Switzer's entry form. But that's when, for the first time, she started doubting her chances. What if they rejected her because she's a woman? So Switzer proposed doing what Bobby Gibb had done, running unofficially without a bib or a number. But Briggs was a purist. He said if she was going to run, she had to do it right, as a registered participant. So they dug into the official rules. And believe it or not, it wasn't actually stated anywhere that all runners had to be male. It was simply implied. So Switzer sent in a formal application, but not as Catherine Switzer or Kathy Switzer, but as K.V. Switzer. And lo and behold, she was accepted. 
The day before the marathon, Switzer and Briggs drove five hours to Boston. When they arrived, it was dark out, but Briggs insisted they do a drive-by of the course. Peering out the frosted windows, Switzer says it was actually demoralizing to see how far 26 miles really was. She felt an impending feeling of doom. When she got to the hotel, she called her dad back home in Virginia. He reminded her she was tough. He said, you can do it. You trained for this. Wednesday, April 19th, 1967. The 70th annual Boston Marathon. Plus, the ideal running conditions of a spring sleet storm. The question for Switzer quickly became, when she walked up to the registration booth to pick up her bib number, would she be found out and turned away? Well, as fate would have it, since Briggs and Switzer registered as a team, Briggs was able to pick up her number on her behalf number 261, and she pinned it to her sweatshirt. Switzer made the decision not to dress incognito. She was going to wear her favorite running clothes, leave her hair down, and even wear lipstick. She wore lipstick every day. Why stop now? As she looked around, she noticed all the other runners looked the same anyway. Sweatpants, hats, gloves. Lipstick aside, she blended right in. That year's 741 runners all squished together at the starting line. Then, pow, the gun went off. Switzer said the first mile was fantastic. The energy on the course was palpable. Everyone cheering, chatting, making friends. Among her fellow runners, she felt at home. Like Gibb, a few men around her started to notice there was a woman in their midst. And they were supportive. One told her he'd always wished his wife was a runner. Then they could train together. But by mile four, things started to shift. A press bus came barreling down the course and stopped right in front of Switzer. Word had spread there was a woman running, again, and newspapers were desperate for a photo. Then, out of nowhere, a man in an overcoat ran up behind her, reached out, and tried to grab her pulling off one of her gloves in the process. It scared Switzer. She figured he was a crazed spectator. But a few moments later, the man reappeared right in front of her with the most vicious look on his face she said she'd ever seen. He grabbed her again, this time by the shoulder. Turns out he wasn't a crazed spectator. He was a race official. As the official took hold of her body, he jolted her backwards and started screaming in her face to, quote, get out of his race. Then he started swatting at her sweatshirt, and that's when she realized he was trying to rip off her bib number. Switzer instinctively leapt back and started running away, but he chased her, and he managed to get a hold of her sweatshirt. There was snow falling, cameras flashing, spectators shouting, and a strange man had a fistful of her shirt. Her heart dropped into her stomach. She said she'd never experienced physical violence before, and she completely froze. Then, out of nowhere, Briggs and another runner jumped into the altercation. She said there was a thud, and suddenly the race official was airborne. He fell back onto the ground, and Briggs told her to just keep running. 
Switzer says she started to panic. What she didn't know at the time was that that man wasn't just a race official. He was the race director. She was worried she'd be arrested or that Briggs would be arrested. She wondered if she should just quit the race. But if she did, that photo would make her look like a publicity stunt. If she did, maybe no woman would ever be able to register for the Boston Marathon again. Soon, her fear and humiliation turned to anger, and it fueled her run. There was still 20 miles to go. She'd finish the race on her hands and knees if she had to. That's when the press reappeared, this time shouting, When are you going to quit? And what are you trying to prove? Switzer says in her book, that's when she started thinking. Why weren't there more women runners? Had they internalized all the myths perpetuated by men about the effects of exercise on women's bodies, fearing they might be true? After all, how would they know they weren't true without being given the chance to try? Male runners were given opportunities, scholarships, prize money. Women deserved those things too. Then the blisters on her heels burst, jolting her right back into the present. Her left hand was freezing cold without a glove, and she quietly asked Briggs, who was still running beside her, how long until they reached the midway point. But he just looked at her. They'd passed the midway point miles ago. They were almost at the end. And as they turned the corner, the word finish was painted on the street. No one arrested Catherine Switzer. No one successfully pulled her off the road. She crossed the finish line at 4 hours, 20 minutes, becoming the first registered woman to officially run the Boston Marathon. Switzer says she crossed the tape both a saint and a pariah. Women seemed to praise her, while male spectators told her she should just stay in the kitchen. But she wasn't the only woman who ran that day. Bobby Gibb had returned for a second year, though officials were ready for her this time, and they didn't let her across the finish line. BAA President Will Cloney made another statement, saying there was no place for any unauthorized person in the Boston Marathon. He said no woman had ever run the marathon, they merely ran on the same course as the men, adding, quote, If Catherine Switzer were my daughter, I'd spank her. The following year, in 1968, the Boston Marathon officially added men only to its entry forms. But a photo of Switzer being grabbed by the race director had landed front and center on the pages of major newspapers and it ignited women-led protests at marathons all over the country. More and more women started running the Boston Marathon, unofficially, with their uteruses still intact, eventually forcing the hand of the BAA. And in 1972, the year the historic Title IX legislation passed in the United States, banning discrimination on the basis of sex, women were officially admitted into the Boston Marathon after 75 years of rejection. Gibbon Switzer's feats of athleticism, activism, and bravery reverberated well beyond the city of Boston, 
with the rest of the country's major marathons soon following suit. Women of color crossed finish lines, and by 1984, women were finally permitted into the Olympic marathon on the world stage. Despite being criticized for their bodies, harassed, degraded, nearly driven off roads, violently grabbed by officials, mischaracterized by the media, and told they were inferior, Bobby Gibb and Catherine Switzer demanded equality. Gibb says, you never know what a woman is capable of until you give her a chance to show you. tackle something that everyone else says is impossible, it is so easy to feel isolated and vulnerable. But when you have a dream in your heart, you're never alone. Bobby Gibb and Catherine Switzer kept their dreams alive in the face of so much rejection. From friends, neighbors, the milkman, coaches, journalists, racing officials, and even doctors who told them their uteruses would fall out if they ran marathons. They were told it was impossible for a woman to run 26 miles. But impossible is only impossible until someone does it. And these two remarkable women were not just running a race, they were smashing boundaries. One of the grinding truths of life is that so much of what is worthwhile doing requires us to be uncomfortable, to risk failure, to risk physical hardship, to risk massive backlash, to risk humiliation. Gibb and Switzer put all that on the line and more. But look at what they achieved. In 1996, the 100th anniversary of the Boston Marathon, the organizers apologized for past wrongs. They announced the era between 1966 and 1971 would no longer be referred to as the unofficial era, but rather the pioneer era, finally recognizing the accomplishments of Gibb and Switzer. Bobby Gibb was officially named the woman's winner of the 1966, 1967, and 1968 Boston Marathons. In 2016, Gibb was named the Grand Marshal of the very marathon that denied her all those years ago. That year, the women's winner gifted her trophy to Gibb as a symbol of appreciation and thanks for her role in the women's running movement. In 2017, the 50th anniversary of Catherine Switzer's run, Catherine was not only named Grand Marshal, she took part in the Boston Marathon at the age of 70. That day, her original bib number 261 was retired in her honor. And on that day, in 2017, over 50% of the runners in the Boston Marathon were female. It has been said that the word impossible has dropped in use by 50% over the last 100 years. Bobby Gibb and Catherine Switzer proved that beyond all doubt, beyond all the obstacles, the jeering, and the rejections. Success is never a sprint, it's a marathon. Never, ever 
Ke Wab. The Boston Marathon. Number of registered female runners in 1967, 1. Number of registered female runners in 2019, 13,684. The Rejection Podcast is an apostrophe podcast production and is recorded in an Airstream mobile recording studio. This series is hosted and written by me, Sydney O'Reilly. Research, Allison Pinches. Director, Callie O'Reilly. Engineer, Jeff Devine. Producer, Debbie O'Reilly. Theme music by Ian Lefevre and Ari Posner. Major sources for this episode are listed in the show notes on our website, apostrophepodcasts.ca slash rejection. We regret to inform you, we're on social. Follow us at apostrophe pod. If you like this episode, you may also like Rejecting Dr. Mae Jemison, the first woman to fly in space from season two. This series is executive produced by Terry O'Reilly. See you next time. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. I'm being completely honest now, okay? Homelessness makes me uncomfortable. But then I think, at least it's not sleeping on the sidewalk with everything I own uncomfortable. Don't let homelessness assumptions get in the way of homelessness solutions. Go to canadacandoit.ca. Help the Canadian Alliance to End Homelessness.